This week's episode is brought to you by DreamCloud Mattresses. DreamCloud is an affordable, luxury hybrid mattress that combines the best of latex, memory foam, tufting, and coil technology to provide the best sleep that money can buy, and an exciting combination of comfort and support. And what's particularly great about it is that with a 365-day free trial, that's right, a full year to try it out, you can take your time deciding whether you like it or not. For listeners of the show, DreamCloud is offering 200 bucks off your first order. Head on over to isaacmeyer.net slash dreamcloud, that's one word, dreamcloud, and click the link for the discount. And then once your new bed arrives, have a lie down, enjoy the comfort, and crank up the podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 270, A Brief and Fleeting Dream. Welcome back, it's 2019 and we're going to start things off with a pair of stories that honestly I probably should have done sometime like five years ago. You see, once, just about five years ago, I wrote a couple of lines about a classic of Japanese literature in which I referred to the tale of Genji, one of the most famous written works in Japanese history, and, depending on whose definition you subscribe to, possibly the first novel ever written, as the twilight of Japanese history. And for the record, I do stand by that. I've read bits of Genji, though never the whole thing, and I don't particularly like it personally. I think it's pretty weird, honestly, for reasons we'll talk about in a bit. But, regardless of my personal literary tastes, that's no reason not to talk about one of the most significant figures and most significant written pieces in Japanese literary history. So let's refresh ourselves on the setting of the tale of Genji and the time in which its author, Murasaki Shikibu, lived, because it's been a good long while since we've rewound things back this far. Genji was written during the height of the Heian period. The Heian era was before the time of the rise of the samurai as a ruling class, though by the time of Murasaki Shikibu's own life, the samurai as a distinct social class did exist. They simply weren't ascendant yet in the realm of politics. The beating heart of politics and culture in the Heian era was, well, Heian, the imperial capital of the Japanese emperors, known to us today as the city of Kyoto. The city was declared Japan's imperial city in 794, and would technically remain as such until 1868, when the emperor relocated to Tokyo, though in practice, Heian slash Kyoto lost political importance as anything other than a symbol to be held by the actual powers in Japanese politics by around the 1200s or so. The city itself was modeled after what was, at the time, pretty indisputably the greatest city on earth, Chang'an, the imperial capital of China's Tang dynasty, today the city of Xi'an. Like Chang'an, Heian was designed on a grid system with a series of north-south avenues with auspicious or descriptive names. For example, the one to the east of the imperial palace was Omiya Oji, or the Great Road of the Great Palace. The other component of this grid was a series of east-west numbered avenues counting down from the north, 
so the one running to the north of the palace is Ichijo Oji, or First Avenue. The Imperial Palace itself was, like the one in Chang'an, a part of a large compound, the Daidaidi, or Great Inner Palace, located at the north end of the city grid in the center. This geographic arrangement was an expression of political power. The emperors of China built their palaces in the north of the city, with their thrones facing south, so facing south itself became a metaphor for the expression of power. This was the world into which the author of the tale of Genji Murasaki Shikibu was born, a world of Japan's courtly aristocracy, or kuge. These are the families whose lineages go back to the birth of imperial Japan itself, the mighty clans and great families who hitched their proverbial wagons to the ascent of Japan's imperial family during the initial unification of Japan, and during the process of the centralization of the country that followed. The most prominent of these families were the Fujiwara, a clan dating back to the 600s. Their progenitor, Nakatomi no Kamatari, had allied himself to the winning side in a series of power struggles in the 600s. As a result, both Kamatari and his descendants had been rewarded with a new clan name, Fujiwara, and with a close family alliance with the imperial clan. Four centuries of Fujiwara officials and intermarriages with the imperial clan later, the Fujiwara were a dominant force in the city of Heian, some would say the dominant force. But what, you ask, about life outside of the city of Heian itself? Surely this is important as well. Well, in a historical sense, absolutely. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on at the time the tale of Genji is written like the conquest of northern Honshu by the Japanese, who were engaged in a protracted struggle with Japan's aboriginal inhabitants, or the expansion of cultural and economic ties with China, or the increasing power of the samurai clans in the countryside, or a myriad of other things. But the tale of Genji and the life of Murasaki Shikibu are very much stories of the city of Heian. Genji as a narrative takes place entirely in Heian with only a few exceptions, and Murasaki Shikibu spent the majority of her life in the imperial capital, never leaving for anything more than short stretches of time. The city was, after all, the cultural heart of Japan. The nation's literary scene, for lack of a better word, was there. It was the heart of politics as well, which kept the men of the Kuge aristocracy and thus the women of that aristocracy in the city. It is true that Kuge sometimes went into the provinces as governors, appointed as provincial governors for fixed terms, a system borrowed from that of the Chinese Empire, but the most prestigious positions were in the central government bureaucracy in Kyoto itself. If you could stay, you did. Sometimes you even stayed if you weren't supposed to. If you were shipped off to the provinces, it was possible to nominate someone else to go as your proxy thus avoiding arduous time outside of the capital. So with all that background in mind, let's talk about the life of Murasaki Shikibu. And this is actually pretty hard to do because there's a lot we don't know about one of Japan's most famous authors. She was born sometime in the 970s, either 973 or 978, we're not precisely sure, into a branch of the Fujiwara family, which, after several centuries of power and prestige, had become pretty sprawling. The branch she was born into was not the foremost branch of the Fujiwara clan. 
Instead, it was a middling branch where the men were often either mid-ranking bureaucrats or provincial governors. By the by, the name Murasaki Shikibu is in essence a sort of nickname. The naming convention of the time was for women not to use their personal names in most circumstances. Instead, they were known by a combination of a nickname and a name inherited from the status of their closest male relative. Murasaki in Japanese means violet, the color of the wisteria, or in Japanese, Fuji, as in Fujiwara. Shikibu is a title inherited from her father, whose highest posting was in the Shikibusho, the Department of Ceremonial Affairs in the state bureaucracy. We don't know what her actual personal name was. Her later career working for one of Japan's empresses has given us some clue, as some documents from court refer to one Fujiwara no Takako joining the Empress's entourage. This might be Murasaki. We just don't know for sure. The family did have a few bits of heritage to be proud of. Quite a few of Murasaki Shikibu's ancestors were respected poets in the classical Chinese tradition. Some had even managed the singular honor of getting some of their poems into one of the imperially sponsored anthologies that was put together every so often. Her father, Fujiwara no Tametoki, had three poems included in an imperial anthology and even served as a tutor to an imperial prince, so hey, not bad. As we've discussed before, one of the expectations of a gentleman and scholar in the Confucian tradition was a degree of fluency with poetic expression. Poetry itself was a popular state-sponsored activity. It was also very much a male one, or at least the classical Chinese form of it was. If you are not familiar with the incredible complexities of classical Chinese, well, oh boy, let me tell you, it's hard. In addition to all of the usual complexities of Chinese, the characters, the lack of tenses, all that stuff, classical Chinese has an incredibly complicated grammar, which requires a knowledge of more characters than modern Chinese, and has a whole bunch of fun little quirks and idiosyncrasies, like the words for and and or being the same and distinguished only by context. Men underwent the rigorous education necessary to understand this language, mostly because it was the language of government and cultural exchange between educated men from Japan, China, and Korea. Women usually did not. When they wrote, it was in a simpler script, entirely phonetic, used to write Japanese, not Chinese, derived from Chinese characters but mapped onto the sounds of the Japanese language. This was the kana system, the phonetic system used today in Japan alongside Chinese characters. Women wrote primarily in phonetic kana, men did not, or if they did it was in an attempt to mimic a female voice as was the case with texts like the Tosaniki, written by a man named Ki no Tsurayuki. He wrote a fictional diary of a woman's travels in Shikoku, and wrote it in kana to make it feel more authentically written by a woman. However, unlike many of her female contemporaries, Murasaki Shikibu could understand classical Chinese and compose in it as well. She picked it up from her brother, who studied it to advance his own career. As she wrote in her diary, now available in translation from Richard Browning, quote, When my brother was a young boy learning the Chinese classics, I was in the habit of listening to him, and I became unusually proficient at understanding those passages, 
that he found too difficult to understand and memorize. Father, a most learned man, always regretted the fact. Just my luck, he would say, what a pity she was not born a man. Her father certainly did treat her differently from your average Heian Kuge noblewoman. Among other things, Murasaki Shikibu was not married off as soon as she hit puberty, as was the practice at the time. Instead, she remained single until her 20s, and her father actually did take her along when he got a governorship in Echizen in 996, about five days' ride to the northeast of Kyoto, in modern Fukui Prefecture. This was very uncommon for a single 20-something woman of the time. Murasaki Shikibu spent two years there before returning to Heian in 998 to marry her second cousin, which was not actually that uncommon for the time. His name was Fujiwara no Nobutaka. Nobutaka was substantially older than her and had several lovers and a series of concubines already. He was, by all accounts, a pleasant and charming man, but clearly one who had a life independent of his own wife. The exact nature of their marriage is contested. Some experts on her life have suggested that Murasaki was charmed by her husband, others have pointed to some lingering signs of resentment and feelings of abandonment in her poetry. Regardless of how the marriage was for her, she did not have to endure it terribly long. The two had their only child, a daughter named Fujiwara no Katako, who would actually go on to be a respected poet in her own right, in 999. Two years later, Nobutaka died in the midst of a massive cholera outbreak. Remarriage was an option for Kuge women during this period, but for Murasaki Shikibu it appears not to have been a particularly appealing one. She never remarried. Having inherited her husband's estate, she had no economic need to. Instead, she did what maudlin, introspective aristocratic types seem to always do in this kind of situation, and took up a career as a writer. According to legend, she made her way northeast to Lake Biwa, and took up residence at a temple nearby, Ishiyamadera, founded in the 700s. There, she waited listlessly for some sign until, gazing at the moon in the night sky on an August evening, she was inspired to write The Tale of Genji. That story is, of course, probably bunk and not attested to in any contemporary source. It was, in all likelihood, written after the fact to give the inception of this significant work a sense of gravity. But the image of Murasaki Shikibu gazing at the moon, seeking inspiration, is a tremendously famous one. It has appeared on woodblocks and in discussions of Genji ever since. What we do know is that after a few years of widowhood, Murasaki Shikibu got wrapped up in court politics, specifically a very complicated marriage dispute. Let me back up. While Murasaki Shikibu's branch of the Fujiwara was not what it once was in terms of power, there were other branches of the family that had done much better for themselves. One of these branches, really the preeminent branch, was that of Fujiwara no Michinaga, which was the dominant branch of the Fujiwara by the time of Murasaki Shikibu's own life. Michinaga looked to cement his power by, among other things, arranging to have one of his daughters become the primary wife, the empress, of the sitting emperor Ichijo. There was just one problem, Ichijo already had a primary wife, Empress Teishi. Undeterred by things like a lack of divorce laws, Michinaga simply arranged for this daughter to become the emperor's second primary wife, an unheard of situation. 
This daughter, no older than 13 at the time she married the emperor, is known to history as Empress Shoshi. If you're finding this very confusing, don't worry, we'll talk about it in a little more detail next week. Right now, all you really need to know is that in an unprecedented and scandalous move, the emperor now had two primary wives. And in 1006, Fujiwara no Michinaga invited his relative, Lady Murasaki Shikibu, to come to court and join the entourage of his beloved daughter, the second empress, Shoshi. Murasaki's time at court was interesting for a couple of reasons. First, by all accounts, she got along well with Shoshi, who was an intellectually curious young girl. Murasaki even took the time to secretly tutor the empress in Chinese, which, again, was a language associated with men. Women were expected to confine themselves to Japanese. The whole thing was really rather scandalous at court, especially once Shoshi started decorating her quarters with Chinese calligraphy. Positively shocking. Second, Murasaki Shikibu got wrapped up in some complicated rivalries, both inside the court of her own empress and with the court of the other empress, Teishi. Shoshi's court was full of educated, intellectual women who, like Murasaki Shikibu, were intended to amuse Shoshi and to adorn her court. Murasaki generally did not get along with these other women very well. She described one of them, Izumi Shikibu, as an uninspired poet with bad calligraphy who was really not a poet at all because of how derivative and basic her work was. In less literary terms, Murasaki appears to just not have enjoyed court life at all very much. It was dominated by an extreme level of intense formalism and ritual, with a complicated calendar of events, punctuated by bouts of drunken revelry. This appears not to have brought Murasaki Shikibu, who seems more of the quiet, introspective type, much joy at all. Her positive notes on court life were pretty much limited to some kind words about her only friend among Shoshi's ladies-in-waiting, and a note that, quote, I like the snow here, unquote. It is worth noting that some scholars of her life do think it's possible Murasaki had at least one fling at court with the man who sent her there, Fujiwara no Michinaga. He definitely flirted aggressively with her, it's unclear how much she reciprocated, as all she recorded in her diary was his advances. The whole situation, though, was pretty awkward. Michinaga was the reason she had her job in Shoshi's court. He was, in essence, her boss, that's a bit of an anachronism, and thus, directly turning him down was kind of fraught. Honestly, my read on their relationship is simply that it was one more reason for her to hate court life. But that's my take, it's not a universal one. Murasaki also had a complex relationship with the court of the other woman, Empress Teishi, and especially with the foremost woman among Teishi's retinue, a talented firebrand of a writer named Sei Shonagon. If you have not heard of Sei Shonagon, she's the other most famous writer of the Heian era, and spoilers, she's going to be the topic next week. I'll tell you more about the author of the famous Makuro no Soushi, the pillow book, then, but to give you the short version for what you need to know now, Sei Shonagon was pretty much everything Murasaki Shikibu was not. Gregarious, where Murasaki tended to be introverted. Funny, where Murasaki tended to be serious. Showy, where Murasaki liked to hide her education and knowledge. 
Obviously, the two were either going to fall madly in love or hate each other, and given the nature of their rival courts, the latter was far more likely. In her diaries, Murasaki described Shonagon as a show-off, an egotist, and just enormously self-absorbed. However, the most famous thing about Murasaki Shikibu's life at court is that this is the moment where she started to write the tale of Genji, so you know, we should probably talk about that. The tale of Genji is, well, a tale about a guy named Genji, specifically Shining Genji, Hikaru no Genji, a prince of the imperial family who is demoted from full status in the imperial clan after a fortune teller says that calamity will befall the country if Genji ever becomes emperor. Instead, he's given a surname, Minamoto, or Genji. Gen is just another reading of Minamoto, she just means clan. The story then chronicles his various adventures around the city of Heian. The tale of Genji does not really have a plot as such. There's no clear character arc that Genji goes through, no opposing force he overcomes, no real change in his character beyond just getting older and wiser. The only real consistent thread to the story is, frankly, pretty creepy. It's where my whole Japanese Twilight thing comes from. You see, Genji falls madly in love with one of the Emperor's concubines, Lady Fujitsubo, but because of her relationship with the Emperor, the fact that she is basically his stepmother, he knows he can never act on his feelings. Instead, he meets a young girl, all of ten, named Murasaki. Hey, that name sounds familiar who looks a lot like Fujitsubo, and is actually related to her. And then he decides to groom her into the image of his ideal woman to make her into his vision of her relative Lady Fujitsubo. So yeah, that's something. And if you're wondering, yes, he does eventually end up consummating his secret passionate love with Lady Fujitsubo. She even gives birth to a son, who is passed off as an imperial prince, Yes, he does eventually marry Murasaki anyway. Yes, he ends up marrying a third woman after he gets tired of Murasaki, who is still alive, packing her off to a nunnery. So, yikes. And of course, yes, I am anachronistically judging this story by the standards of my own time, rather than the standards of the time it was written in, and that's probably a little unfair of me, and I accept and acknowledge that, but also, yikes. The rest of the story is simply a series of vignettes of Genji's life, mostly involving his continued trysts outside of his marriage with a series of women, and one young man as well. Those romances follow a fairly set pattern. A chance meeting, followed by clandestine exchange of love poetry, followed by sneaking off into the women's quarters. The women of the tale of Genji, like the actual Kuge women of Heian, Japan, lived secluded lives in women's quarters, and rarely interacted with men to whom they were not related or married. Despite this, or perhaps because of it, the idea of a secret romantic tryst with a charming man was a major literary motif of the time. These trysts were thus a big part of the popularity of the story. Some of them get pretty intense. Indeed, one of them ends up like what sounds like the pitch for a pretty good horror movie, involving a woman, Lady Rokujo, becoming so mad at being spurned by Genji that her spirit goes out in the night to kill his first wife and nearly gets Murasaki as well. The final parts of the story follow the adventures of Genji's kind of son by his third wife, named Kaoru, 
except he's actually the offspring of an affair Genji's third wife had with another man, which Genji is okay with because, to be honest, if he wasn't, that would be kind of hypocritical. But anyway, the rest of the tale is concerned with a rivalry between Kaoru and another young man for the affections of a distant daughter of the Imperial line. The tale ends very abruptly, without this tension ever really being resolved. There's a lot of dispute over the ending. Some scholars believe Murasaki Shikibu died before she could finish the story, others that the story as we have it is exactly what she intended to write in its entirety, others that the whole idea of an ending is just modern literary bias, and that Murasaki planned to just keep writing as long as she possibly could without some kind of idea for where the story was supposed to quote-unquote go. Even the precise date of completion and authorship of the end of the text are somewhat disputed. There have been scholars who argue that the Kaoru chapters, usually called the Uji chapters, because the story relocates to the town of Uji, were written by Murasaki Shikibu's daughter and incorporated into the tale later. The only thing we can be sure of is that the work was more or less complete by 1021, when a separate famous Heian literary piece, The Diary of Lady Sarashina, makes reference to the writer's joy at obtaining a complete copy of Genji, and directly mentions a character from these final chapters of the text. As I alluded to earlier, Genji is sometimes called the world's first novel, and certainly does contain elements of what we would consider to be a novel today. In particular, Genji has a clear protagonist, and the characters also have very clear characterizations and personalities, and operate and behave in a realistic way. As I mentioned, it doesn't really have a clear plot, but strictly speaking, that's not a required part of the definition of a novel. So what specifically motivated Murasaki to write this work, which spans a total of 54 distinct chapters? Well, for one thing, her less-than-pleasurable life at court gave her plenty of reason to want to be apart from her fellow courtiers, and what better excuse is there to avoid people than, sorry, I'd love to, but I have to work on my novel? She also may have been encouraged to write the book by Empress Shoshi or by other boosters for the Empress as part of a competition between the courts of the two rival empresses. After all, Empress Teishi's rival court had Sei Shonagon on its side, so Shoshi needed women who could write and produce at the same level. Otherwise, the new empress risked being outshone by the old empress. This certainly fits with at least some of the available evidence. Murasaki Shikibu describes reading chapters of Genji to the court of Empress Shoshi on occasion in her diary, and that kind of public display of her literary prowess suggests that her work was intended as an ornament to Shoshi's court. Now, the details of the end of Murasaki Shikibu's own life are murky. The most commonly given date for her death is 1014, but that's not based on any records that mention her directly. Instead, a government chronicle notes that her father left a post in Echigo at short notice to return to Heian, and it's theorized that he made his return early to mourn and make arrangements for her funeral. However, that is pure speculation. Maybe he returned home for some other reason. Other scholars have suggested that Murasaki was still attending the Empress Shoshi as late as 1025. Again, there's no direct mention either way in contemporary sources. So really, there's no way to be sure. However, simply by the number of scholars who have accepted this date, 
1014 is often given as the consensus date of death, which would put Murasaki Shikibu in her early 40s at the time she died. Murasaki was one of those rare writers who was an uppercase big deal during her own life and very shortly after her death. For example, I've already mentioned the Sarashina Nikki, the Diaries of a Heian Kuge Woman, known only as the daughter of Sugawara no Takasuke, or Lady Sarashina, who was born in 1008, making her a rough contemporary of Murasaki. The tale of Genji is a major motif of the Sarashina Nikki. Lady Sarashina spends most of the text talking about her love for Genji and her joy at having a complete copy of the work. She is, in essence, Murasaki's first fangirl, and her fandom for Genji is a consuming force in her life, so much so that in her later years she writes of her regret at allowing her obsession with Genji to consume so much of her own life. Probably the most defining feature of Genji's popularity early on was the highly gendered split in its readership. Broadly speaking, women tended to love the work which was written in Japanese, men tended not to or to denigrate it outright, because it was written in Japanese. Even though Murasaki Shikibu knew how to write in classical Chinese, she wrote Genji in phonetic Japanese. After all, as a member of the Empress's court, she was expected to behave in a certain way, including composing in Japanese the language of women and not Chinese the language of men. Written works in Japanese were considered inherently unmanly and by most Kuge aristocratic men of lesser value than works composed in Chinese. This attitude didn't really change until about 150 years after Murasaki Shikibu's death, thanks to the fact that her work caught the eye of one of, if not the most prominent poets in Japanese history, Fujiwara no Teika. If you have a strong interest in medieval Japanese poetry, you've probably heard of him. If you don't, Basically, he's easily the most famous poet of his generation, and he really liked Genji, and promoted it as a classic. For Murasaki Shikibu's literary reputation, it has been uphill ever since. Genji has become, in a lot of ways, the classic of Japanese literature, so much so that the earliest date in which it's ever mentioned in any written text, in Murasaki Shikibu's own diary on November 1st, 1008, became the date of a holiday in Japan, Classics Day. Today, the tale of Genji is universally acclaimed as one of the highest points. Some, like the Japanese Nobel laureate in literature, Kawabata Yasunari, have called it the highest point of all Japanese literature. It is praised for being a novel driven by the psychology of its characters. It is who they are as people that creates the tension of the story, rather than outside sources. The novel was the inspiration for one of the most famous no plays ever made, Aoi no Ue, and a host of other vignettes and stories from Genji have since been adapted for the no stage. Allusions to the story exist in many other classic works of literature and theater. More recently, it has been made into several movies, a couple of animated films, and even a stage play. For my money, the most hilarious concept for a Genji spinoff is actually from the late Edo period, Nise Murasaki Inaka Genji, or Fake Murasaki and Bumpkin Genji, a gokan, or sort of popular novel, from the late Edo period. It takes the basic characters and structures of Genji, and transposes the action to a more modern, urban Japanese setting in the 1800s, in order to both play with the story in interesting ways and poke some loving fun at the overwrought aspects of Heian court culture.
Unlike the original, this version is a bit more plot-driven, a bit more action-packed, and a bit less dependent on pure psychology to drive the plot forward. It was, in other words, much easier to read, and thus enormously popular. Supposedly, the initial run sold more than 15,000 copies despite a very high purchase price, which is pretty crazy for the Edo period. Fun bit of trivia, the original tale of Genji is also the novel that kickstarted the career of probably the most famous translator and scholar of Japanese currently alive, Donald Keane. Supposedly, he came across a two-volume set of Genji translated by Arthur Whaley in a used bookstore in New York in the 1940s. He paid 49 cents for this interesting-looking pair of books, and through them, fell in love with Japanese history, going on to be one of the most celebrated academics working on Japan ever, period. More mundanely, parts of Genji, though not the whole thing as it's well over a thousand pages, are commonly assigned as part of the Japanese literature curriculum in high schools around that country, or in Japanese literature courses in Western colleges, like the one I took as a sophomore. This is how a story whose author we don't actually know that much about became the story of Japanese literature, how Murasaki Shikibu became, in a lot of ways, the most famous author in Japanese history. Next week, we'll take another look at Sei Shonagon, Murasaki Shikibu's contemporary and competitor. For now, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Frank Gulla, Bob Schneider, and Luca Prichinik for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we take a look at the other side of the famous Heian Literary Authors coin and the life of Sei Shonagon.